cracking. Good morning. It's really nice to see you. Last week we looked at Hebrews chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2. That passage presents us with a comparison between three of the main actors in the eternal cosmic drama in which we find ourselves caught up. The Son of God, the servants of God, and the saints of God. That is, Jesus, the angels, and our good selves. You'll remember that they, uh, we drew a parallel between that and the well-known introduction to John's Gospel. You know, the one that's read at every Christmas service in the beginning was the word, and so on. And we saw that the writers of the Hebrews was principally concerned at the outset to contrast the messenger with the message. The word bearer with the actual word himself. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in the faith through prophets, in messages that were carried to them by angels, his servants. But with the arrival of Christ in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, his son who created the whole world, sustains it, saves it, and now rules it from his position at the right hand of God. Then came a great therefore at the start of chapter 2. And when we see a therefore, we have to look and see what it's there for. Right. In this case, the conclusion was that because we have this incredible privilege of not just hearing from God through his servants, but actually meeting him in his son, we should pay much closer attention to what we've heard. For how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, as we press on into chapter 2, down to uh, chapter 3, verse 6, I want to present today's reading as the perfect counterbalancing passage to last week's. Last week's passage concerned the full divinity of Christ as the exact imprint, the perfect likeness of God himself and the full brilliance of his glory. Today's declares the full humanity of Jesus and presents us with several reasons why this is so important. We're going to trace the argument from God's original plan for humanity through its partial fulfillment in Jesus alone to God's current plan to make all of us his family through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. As always in Hebrews, in the background lies the knowledge that we are living in these last days, chapter 1, verse 2, the period immediately preceding the day of the Lord, which is the day of judgment, when God will finally bring all his plans to completion. That is, with or without us. And just like last week, we're going to finish up with a therefore as well, how all of this theology affects us. As always, the word of God is not only to be understood and believed, it's to be put into practice. And frankly, I I wouldn't give tuppence for the theology of anyone who's just speaking theory. Because you learn in a day's trying to put it into practice what would take you a hundred years of study to find out. As is so often the case, there are other ways that we could have divided up this passage, and I'm sure there are other emphases we could have chosen to stress, but on this occasion, uh, as I prepared and prepared, it seems to fall into the following four segments. And for the sake of neatness, I've called these sovereignty, sonship, salvation, and so what. You like the yeses? And that, if you want one, is the title for this talk. Sovereignty, sonship, salvation, and so what? 
Without further ado, let's read Hebrews 2 from verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting in subjection everything to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons of glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in the blood and flesh, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So the first S we see there is sovereignty. In verses 5 to 9, the writer refers to Psalm 8, which is a a song of praise to the majesty of our God in creation. The psalm expresses awe that despite the smallness and simplicity of mankind, if that's the Lord, could you give us the message? Despite the smallness and simplicity of mankind, we have the amazing honor of becoming masters of all earthly things. 
The biblical scholars among us will be quick to point out that there are a lot of textual difficulties in this section, but I think most of them are resolved when we remember that the writer is using the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek Old Testament of that time. Uh, for more on that, last week's talk. Get the podcast. That still leaves a little uncertainty in verse 7 over two words, one that could equally easily mean a little or for a little while, and the other one could mean lower, denoting rank, or less, which speaks of less able, being less able. The ESV, which we just read from, goes one way, your own Bible might well go another. I don't think it really matters too much. When ambiguities like this arise, we should try and keep an open mind about which sense to choose. And sometimes, as may well be the case here, the best answer is both. For our purposes today, sticking solely to the interpretation of Hebrews, either emphasis seems safe enough. The point is one about verse 5, the future, and verse 8, the present state of the world we live in. And we should note that the phrase, the world to come, is not talking about some uh, airy-fairy heaven where we're sitting on clouds uh, playing harps for all eternity, like some Tom and Jerry reference. Um, It's not that. The The word translated world in the world to come here means the inhabited earth. It is a physical earth. Verses five to nine then are specifically about God's plan for the planet. We said last week that chapter one was almost entirely a picture of heaven. Well, chapter two brings us down to earth. Not with a bump exactly, but very definitely all the same. The intention, it seems to me, is to show how God's purposes in heaven and on earth are interconnected and interdependent. And both are under the lordship of Christ. So in chapters one and two, we have a double linking between heaven and earth and between the divinity and humanity of Jesus. It's pretty neat, isn't it? At the end of this series, we'll find ourselves in Advent, the run-up to Christmas. And I want to suggest that what we have here in these first two chapters of Hebrews is, in fact, a wonderful foundation course in the whole concept of the incarnation of Jesus, why God became man. In verses 5 and 6, the writer is, in fact, looking back, as it were, through the lens of Psalm 8, to a great foundational truth expressed in Genesis 1, verse 28. There, as part of the creation narrative, God blessed mankind, told us to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion over all animal life in air, sea, and land. Now the argument returns once more to the angels, which so dominated chapter 1 and which we're told was a popular subject for speculation among Jewish people at the time Hebrews was written. Now, some of you might remember that um, a few years back, the same kind of fad arose in our own contemporary culture. So perhaps this message is still relevant. The author is concerned to point out that whatever might be the role of angels in heaven and earth, we should concentrate on our own. Angels, he's keen to point out, are not the point. The planet we live on has not been subjected to angels, but to us. And I don't know that this is in the writer's mind, but it strikes me that one uh, thing that this broad principle speaks of is that we humans have squandered our inheritance, abdicating our power, and left 
the planet in the hands of angels, specifically fallen angels, the devil and his cronies. At the fall in Genesis 3, however we interpret that story, humanity chose the devil's way over God's. We disobeyed God and we unleashed evil on the world, the world that he had given us to rule. From that moment on, pain, hardship and death became our lot instead of the blessed, fruitful, eternal, powerful life that we'd enjoyed up until then. These verses in Hebrews are a call to return to God's original command for mankind, to take charge once again. As verse 8 says, nothing is supposed to be outside of our control. Yet at present, that is not what we're experiencing. God's foundational plan for mankind to rule the earth isn't working out at the moment, as we don't have to look far around us to see. There is a problem then. We are supposed to be in charge, but we're clearly not. But, verse 9, we see Jesus, himself once lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour. In other words, fulfilling to the ultimate degree God's original plan for the whole of humanity. And if that statement sounds to you to be verging on the blasphemous, then we probably need to readjust our vision of God's love for us, of the status he intends for us, of the depth of our union with Christ. And above all, which is the point of these verses, of the complete humanity of our Savior. Here, as if to stress the point, the writer identifies him simply by his human name, Jesus. The magnificent Lord, the creator and sustainer and saviour of the world, who sits at God's right hand, is the man Jesus and no other. And vitally for the argument to follow, he was crowned with glory and honour. <coughs> he was crowned with... <coughs> That's got it. Fast year reference, sorry. Vitally for the argument to follow, he was crowned with glory and honour precisely because he suffered death. By the grace of God, not a futile death, but one on behalf of all mankind. And if, as it does for me, that raises for you the question of how, then hold on to that thought, because help is coming. So that's number one. Sovereignty. Two is sonship. In verses 10 to 13, the writer enlarges on the full humanity of Christ and specifically on the intimate linkage between him and us. It is Jesus alone who has been established as the Son of God up to this point. But verse 10 unmistakably broadens the scope of God's fatherhood to include many sons brought to glory by Jesus, who is the founder of our salvation. And here, possibly though it doesn't appear in any of my commentaries, so do feel free to take it with a pinch of salt, might be one reason why these chapters keep on coming back to angels. It was believed in antiquity that the repeated references in Genesis 6 to the sons of God, who were quite naughty sons of God, and it's an unusual phrase, if not unique in the Old Testament, it's speaking of the sons of God, speaking of angels, not of men. So it might be, just possibly, that some speculation had arisen about whether Jesus died to save angels as well as humans. If so, 
the first chapters would aim to dispel any such thinking. Now, as I say, I've got no evidence other than the text itself for suggesting this, but reading over the, all the angel references in chapters 1 and 2, it would certainly explain a lot. There's possibly an emlet in there for one of you, if you'd like to take it. Be that as it may, we, the saints of God, are now brought into the same relationship to the Father as Jesus himself, the relationship of sonship. And verse 10 makes the point that as humanity suffers, so it's fitting that the saviour of humanity should find completion and fulfil his destiny through suffering. As we just saw in verse 9, Jesus was crowned not despite his suffering and death, but because of it. To avoid confusion, there's no suggestion here that, this, um, that, that Jesus was in some way imperfect until he suffered. And for the benefit of any of you who have the kind of religious upbringing I did, there is certainly no suggestion that our own suffering will get us any closer to God. Most of us, I think, know that in many cases the opposite is the case. But he who came into the world to take away our sins, John 3.17, finally completed his role and so found fulfillment as saviour only as he suffered and died for us. Remember, Hebrews was written to encourage persecuted believers who may already have suffered for their faith, who may have lost friends to persecution. So at least part of the point is to say that Jesus doesn't expect us to go through anything he's not himself prepared to undergo. His death was salvation for us and the road to glory for him. So if we should have the honour of dying for our faith in him, it's not something to be feared. And that's a point he will enlarge on in the next section. It's important to understand that verses 11 and 12 aren't referring to God as our source, but to our first ancestor in the Old Testament, that's Adam. Verse 10 makes us sons of God with a small s. Now to reinforce the point, we're called brothers and sisters of Jesus, the son with a capital S. If you're anything like me, it's quite hard to believe, isn't it, that we, that we could really be sons and daughters of God. Could we really be God's close family? But by his grace, we really are every bit as much so as Jesus himself. If we really took that in, I think it would revolutionize our understanding of our place in this world. But when you think about it, there is no degree of sonship. You either are a particular person's child or you're not. Hebrews says, we are. You're in the family, folks. Jesus is a human saviour who died to save other humans like himself. Like us, verse 13, he had to trust God. And if God says we're his children, then we can trust him in that. The two quotations in verse 13 are both from Isaiah 8. They come immediately after the passage that both Paul and Peter use to refer to Jesus. The one about the stone of offence and the rock of stumbling. Now, Like any educated Jew at the time, the intended reasons must have been familiar with the entire passage. But since most of us probably are not, I'm going to read it to you. I think it offers us a striking pre-echo of Hebrews 1 and 2 in terms of the importance of the message we have heard, our endurance as we wait for the Lord's return in these last days, 
our sonship of God and of our responsibility to bear faithful witness to the truth revealed to us. So here's the whole thing from Isaiah 8, 16 to 18. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. That's what our sonship is like. Is like. Enough said. Sovereignty, sonship, now salvation. In verses 14 to 18, we see that in fact, God's entire plan for our salvation depends upon the humanity of Christ. If he hadn't become human, then verse 14, he could never have died and so destroyed the devil. Verse 15, he could never have risen again and proved to us that death holds no terrors for us. And verse 17, he could never have ascended as our great high priest to represent us before God. Here in this short passage are the three elements of our salvation which Dr. Moffat spoke about so eloquently a fortnight ago. Here is the reason why the humanity of Christ is so very important. Not only so that he could die and rise again, but that when he ascended to the throne room of God, he was able to be a properly representative priest. A human priest for humanity in the very throne room of God. Once again, verse 14 makes a bold statement with no attempt at an explanation. We probably want to know how his death destroyed the devil. The writer seems to expect us to know already or just to accept it. But in Hebrews, I suggest, the mechanism by which it worked is described in the very three-stage process we just saw in these verses. The Jewish religion understands that through sacrifices, especially the one made annually by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, by those we can be put right with God, however sinful we might be. And our sins be put away, right away, as far as the east is from the west, as Psalm 103 puts it. If, as the writer is going on to explain in chapter 9, verse 12, spoiler alert, if Jesus did indeed make a perfect sacrifice once and for all, then our sins have certainly been put away forever. This means that the devil, who hates us, and who through our sin was previously able to destroy us when we died, has now lost fully and forever all his power over us. But that's just to speak of the next life. Like everything in this now and not yet kingdom of God, this actually impinges on our current reality as well. Previously, the devil could get us to do whatever he wanted. In Hebrews, that means sin is principally defined as uh, falling away from uh, the constant confession of our faith. He could get us to do what he wanted by threatening us with the fear of death. Very relevant to a persecuted church. But verse 15, we've been set free from that slavery now that Christ is risen from the dead. Then verse 16 makes the point yet again about humans, not angels, being the object of his saving help. It is we, not angels, who are the target of Jesus' love when he became human and died upon the cross. Then verse 17 speaks of his priesthood and the necessity of being human to be a human priest. But it goes even further than that. He's not only a completely effective high priest 
in God's service. He is a merciful and faithful one. And verse 18 even dares to say that having endured temptation himself, he is able to help us who are tempted. And that's a subject we'll hear a lot more of in chapter 4. For now, let's just remember that temptation is not the same thing as sin. You never have to feel guilty about being tempted. In the passage so far, we've heard all about sovereignty, sonship, and salvation. The question now, which brings the argument in today's talk to a close, is so what? As chapter 1 was followed by a big therefore, so is chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1, uh, following the explanation, uh, the, the passage on heaven and earth and the deity of Christ, heaven and the deity of Christ, we read that therefore we ought to pay the more earnest attention to the things we heard in case we drift away from them. But here, following this exposition about earth and the humanity of Jesus, we read, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's a very similar message, isn't it? If anything, more concentrated following the intervening clarification of who's who and what's what. It's a little unfortunate, perhaps, that in, in the ESV we have the slightly sort of limp lettuce command to consider Jesus. Oh, well, I'm considering him. But it's, it's really not that. The, the Greek word is far stronger in its force. It means fixing your eyes on Jesus, fixing your mind on Jesus. And that, is, I think, is what we're bound to do if we really consider him as the apostle, which means the one sent by God, and the high priest without whom there is no atonement for sin of our confession. Notice how, having uh, explained our position, the writer addresses us as holy brothers and sisters, sharing in a heavenly calling. And notice, too, the introduction for the first time of the word confession that's talking about our faith. Whereas the first big therefore referred to paying attention to the message we've heard, the second urges us to pay attention to the apostle and high priest of the message we speak. And the point is illustrated in verse 2 by reference both to Jesus and to the example of Moses. Both that great hero of Judaism and the Christ himself are described as faithful, i.e. both spoke out the word of God fearlessly, even in dangerous situations. So what should we be like? Once again, as last week, verse 3, the message is don't slip back into Judaism because one greater than Moses is here. Last week's argument in chapter 1 was that we shouldn't be messing around with the servant when we can deal with the son. Here, in the beginning of chapter 3, with beautiful symmetry and with the same purpose, the writer returns to the same line of reasoning, verses 5 and 6. This time with reference to Moses, to the Jew, surely the greatest of all spiritual heroes. Now, he's not knocking Moses by any means. On the contrary, in verse 2, he commends him as an example of faithfulness. And in verse 5, as one who testified prophetically to what was only later revealed in Jesus in these last days. It's just that Jesus is greater, far, far greater than Moses. Notice, too, the unbroken linkage here between Israel, the house of God in the Old Testament, and the church, his household in the New. 
To the writer of Hebrews, there is no distinction. We're one and the same family. We're God's family. But once again, verse 6, it makes no sense. Indeed, it would be extremely rude if we were to pay rapt attention to the servant when the son is waiting to talk to us. The introduction of Moses, of course, foreshadows everything that's going to follow in this letter about the wilderness wanderings of Israel and their faithfulness or lack of it. And we should never make the mistake of separating ourselves from that narrative. The writer of the Hebrews, to him, the application to our own lives is absolutely plain and obvious. We Christians are Israel in an unbroken line from Moses until now. God's household is God's household, and that's what we are. Or are we? Because right at the end of our passage, the final words of verse 6 present us with a conditional phrase. We are God's household if. If what? If indeed we hold fast. Obviously, so we don't drift away. So far, so like chapter 2, verse 1. But this time what we must cling to is not what we once heard, but what we now speak out. According to my Greek dictionary, the word translated confidence here means our frank and fearless outspokenness. And the word translated boasting really refers to our reason for boasting. So we hold fast to two things. Both are fearless speaking out about Jesus and to Jesus himself. Sadly, it sometimes looks to me as if some of the most outspoken voices about Jesus lost touch with Jesus himself a long time ago. I know someone uh, in this very room who was once standing in a cinema queue in another country when a bunch of Christians came down the line giving out tracts. And being a good Christian, she took one and tried to look interested. On one side, it said the single word, turn. So she did. On the other, it said, or burn. I, I, I do not know how anyone who is really clinging to Jesus, the merciful and faithful high priest, could possibly think that is a good way to represent him to unbelievers. But then... Do I do any better on the other side of the equation? Do I do any better than that in holding fast to speaking out about my faith? Are all my contacts with unbelievers characterized by a frank and fearless outspokenness to the point of bragging about my hope in Jesus? Perhaps not. It's the tale of many a report card from my school days. Could do better. Well, my prayer for myself and for us as a church is that we will indeed begin to do better in that regard. I think it's going to prove to be one of the major challenges of this series on Hebrews, as it'll bring to bear in our lives over the next month or two. But I believe also that as we allow the word of God to interrogate our hearts, we change. As we interact with the people of God, we grow in courage and understanding. And as we receive the Spirit of God, we become more like Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. Why don't you stand and I'll pray.
Lord Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest, fully God and fully human, you who now sit at the right hand of God, having made once and for all an offering for the sins of the world. Would you send to us your Holy Spirit now? Would you make yourself real in our minds, in our hearts? Uh, Father, we've, we've, we've covered uh, a lot of ground in these verses today and our minds may be spinning. And I just want to pray that you will plant the seeds of your word deep in the good soil of our minds and hearts so that we'll come to understand what at the moment is a bit of a blur. Would you make these things real to us? Would you help us to understand, most of all, that we really are welcomed into your family as sons and daughters? So come, Holy Spirit, and unite our hearts with you. And Lord, as we reach out to heal and comfort and bring a touch of your presence in your name. Would you bless us? So come, Holy Spirit.